You're listening to the Tuesday Talks Podcast, your source of truth in communications, identity management, and technology. This week's episode joins Numerical's in-house experts, Pierce Gorman and Keith Buell, as they unpack insights from SIPNOC 2023's focus on the call and text authentication ecosystem. Today, they will recap key innovations, personal highlights, and discuss the future of secure communications for businesses and consumers. Welcome to Tuesday Talks, a live discussion series where we bring truth and shed light across the brand, identity, and communications industry. I'm Keith Buell, General Counsel and Head of Global Public Policy at Numerical, and today I'm joined by Pierce Gorman, Distinguished Member of the Numerical's Technical Staff, for a recap of the SIP Network Operators Conference, better known as SIPNOC. Name of the conference this year was Focus on the Call and Text Authentication Ecosystem. Welcome back to the podcast, Pierce. Thanks, Keith. That was uh, really great to gather in person again and finally go to a meeting where you see people and not just videos, you know, like we're doing here. Um, and it was a, a very full set of uh, presentations over three days. There was 32 presentations and there were several birds of a feather sessions and there was a lot of material packed into uh, all of that time. So it was um, a genuinely exciting and interesting uh, event. And I know you had your choice of going to Disney World or going to Sipnock, and being Pierce Gorman, you chose Sipnock, didn't you? Yep, like a kid in a candy store. It's, where else are you going to get that much information and the authors of the information and be able to talk with them and interact with them? And so it's very exciting. Of course I'm going to go to Sipnock. It is a great conference. Richard Shockey and Mark Robbins do a great job putting, that, putting it on, and it's different than a lot of conferences that people go to because this is a focus on – the information and the technology and collaboration. It's not a place where someone's trying to sell you something or you're trying to sell something to somebody else. So it changes the tone, but makes for a, a great three days. Uh, there was a huge variety of people there this year. Uh, first time in person in four years. The major wireless carriers were there. The three analytics providers that work with the carriers, other industry players, several enterprises. Government was there with the FCC, the FTC, uh, the Traceback Group, which is part of U.S. Telecom that does uh, traceback for, for the industry, uh, presenters from the U.K. and France, um, really great group of people. It was great to see Martin Dolly from AT&T in, there in person, oh, kicking yeah. off the conference with his, with his overview. Um, and again, just a, a large, distinguished group of people with a lot of substance. Um, so, Pierce, let's jump right into it. What were your general impressions of the um, of the conference? What were the big themes? Uh, well, there were there were several of them. The one that was my favorite was the identity and trust attribute framework discussion, and that was uh, a number of people brought up material on that. Um, one of them was Russ Housley that was going over the rich call data information, and then. Uh, there was our panel that I think you're going to talk about a little bit more. And then um, also the CTIA organization, John Marino, gave a good presentation on uh, an identity and trust attribute framework that they're putting together for what they're calling branded uh, caller ID. Uh, and I think that that garnered a lot of interest, partly because of the um, general uh, tone of the of the event where there was a lot of frustration expressed with uh well you know the the a topic that we got to talk a lot about at least in the hallway which was um inaccurate labeling and inconsistent and ineffective registration and remediation processes 
and then um, also that uh, I don't think that was talked about just in the in the hallways that seemed to be a pretty big theme in the conference room itself with several enterprises expressing frustration big banks uh, being the enterprises two big banks were there talking about their frustration and expense frankly with uh, the interruptions to their business with inaccurate call labeling and the steps they have to take to get that fixed. That's right. The um, the the one um, representative from one of the largest banks that people will know is a household name uh, had to, had described that they had over three hundred thousand telephone numbers that they felt like they had spent a lot of money and effort putting together good systems that should be treated well. And yet they seem to be spending an awful lot of time trying to make sure that those numbers aren't uh, mislabeled or accidentally blocked. So you're, you're absolutely right. It's a good point to emphasize. I think we'll get back uh, to that in a bit. But what were the other big themes of the conference, Pierce? Yeah, the, the other one of the other themes that I thought was interesting is that there was, uh, a you know, several commentators mentioned that fraud calls uh, overall, the quantity has decreased but that fraud overall is, has increased and that the cost of the fraud has increased. In other words, less calls going through, but they're being more effective, and that's, that's bad for everybody. And there, were, there was at least uh, one or two presentations that focused on artificial intelligence and how that will contribute not just to the bad actors, but also to the methods and mechanisms used to try and fight the, the bad actors. Um, I thought that... Uh, Something else that was noteworthy was that the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, and the state AGs were are just fully engaged. They gave really good um, cross, you know, overviews of the work that they have done and the work that they are doing. And the takeaway there was there's going to be more rules and there's going to be more enforcement. These guys are engaged and they're not going away. And I think they've uh, made a lot of progress. I mean, we all remember the auto warranty calls that we got constantly for years there were some big enforcement actions and uh work by industry working together with the enforcement agencies and those have all but gone away I, there was a chart on screen i can't remember who presented it showing that those have dropped off to next to nothing and i, I think that chart was actually reused on one or two of the presentations i don't think the people collaborated on using the same chart but it just was showing the the information that they needed um, I'll just say it. I think one of them was UMail, and I think uh, the Federal Trade Commission might have used that, or might have been the other way around. But uh, anyway, you're right. That that was the the numbers of the calls are dropping, but their effectiveness is 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 more effective than, per call than it used to be. Um, and the last two the last two uh, general themes or takeaways that I got were that there is a general frustration um, with stir shake and not being um, as sufficiently adopted in the inconsistent implementations and that the TDM is still in the middle of the network creating a, a real obstacle to successful call authentication. And I hadn't heard that before. Before, I mean, the, the, the last two in-person SIPNOCs were in 2018 and 2019 and there, you know, the engineers, we were heads down and a lot of the conversation was, you know, what, how are we going to do stir shake and what are the nuts and bolts that we need to take care of so that we can get this implemented by the deadline set by Congress and the FCC. And here now, this many years later, four years later, the implementation's been done. We The waivers have expired. 
the number of uh, service providers that are registered to do stir shaken has increased pretty dramatically it's over a thousand now but the the numbers on the performance and it depended on who you you know who you asked what view they had of the network which calls they were terminating um, could range from less than half of the calls were were uh, authenticated to to more than half but you know a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of things up in the air. Not all of the different various types of call authentication are supported. So there was there was general frustration on that. And then the last point was that um, the uh, I thought it was interesting that we got readouts from both the United Kingdom and France on the work that they're doing looking at stir shaken. In the case of the United Kingdom, it's... Uh, on their list of things that they're working on. There was a presentation by the Network Interoperability Consultative Committee. And then also uh, from France, we had a, a good readout from the folks there who, like the United States, had a law passed by their uh, legislature that removed any ambiguity about whether or not those carriers were going to implement stir shaken. So um, that was that was the last thing I noticed was the international uh, view of stir shaken well thanks for the great overview pierce let's jump into a couple subjects on in some more detail uh numerical led a panel discussion rebecca johnson our founder and ceo had a panel with chirag patel from five nine which is a uh a carrier and a, a bpo that does a large amount of outbound calling chris drake from iConnective and, and doug granali from gated and they talked about uh rich call data and uh branded calling tell me First of all, what is rich call data and how does that help the problems the industry is facing right now? Well, rich call data is the name given to a internet draft standard um, that provides another mechanism for authenticating a call. And it's the, the one type of signature that is supported for non-service providers. So stir shaken was based on a stir protocol and a shaken standard that said how to use the stir protocol and it said how to use a what's called a shaken extension signature type and that's the thing that's required by law and by by regulation rich call data goes beyond that and is able to um, provide a cryptographic authentication of information about the caller themselves not the carrier that's originating the call but the caller themselves and so the rich call data um, fields that are most commonly uh, discussed are uh, company logo, or sometimes called icon, uh, the reason for calling, and then also the, the company name. And so that's, yeah, go ahead. And John Marino from CTIA uh, gave a presentation on the same subject. Um, and what, what will this ecosystem do? First, tell me what the ecosystem that, that CTIA described is and how RCD fits into it and what the benefits will be for callers and for customers who receive the calls. Okay, it's a set of questions. Let's see if I can remember the, all of them so I can provide the, the answers. The, the, what, what John Marino dis, uh, from uh, CTIA described was an ecosystem of um, providers for this branded caller ID using the RCD call authentication protocol. So uh, it described the idea that you would have a set of 
you know, it's a it's an ecosystem, so anybody can join if they want to, and there are roles that are described for parts of the ecosystem, and so you can sign for, you know, you can uh, provide more than one role uh, potentially, and so the roles they described were onboarder, vetter, um, call signer. Uh, and then a display confirmation service, I think, was described, and then the uh, terminating service provider. But the and what will the benefits be for the callers and the call recipients? Yeah, so the benefits for the callers would be that they have uh, another option in terms of um, where they would go to acquire uh, branded calling solutions. So there's some branding calling solutions that exist today. Most of them are provided by uh, the analytics provider is not the only source, but that is the one of the main sources. And they use various technologies to be able to um, trans, transport uh, branded calling information. Um, typically calling name only, but there are, there are other over-the-top uh, client-based, you know, uh, device client application-based um, solutions that will do more than just a, a name. Um, the benefit here is, though, the information is uh, vetted as it's a critical part of the infrastructure. And so the information that's being committed is something that the terminating service provider can feel confident about. It's been vetted and it's been vetted by people who are in a contractual relationship with CTIA to be able to do that role in the ecosystem. So the, the, the benefit where you know, I think that everybody's looking for is that it will be a standards-based solution. It won't be a one-off solution per provider and that it's an open ecosystem that anybody can join, including the people who provide the existing uh, branded calling solutions. It would be with information that's been um, vetted so that there isn't any, uh, you know, hopefully there's no trademark or any other kind of um, problems that would occur because this information, this rich call data, is far more compelling than just a calling name, but that can also work against uh, against callers or called parties in that, you know, if that call can be spoofed or if that um, information was fraudulent, that would be very bad. So the ecosystem built on this idea of players who are committing contractually to play the role that they're going to in that ecosystem, be accountable, um, I think puts the guardrails on what's there from a protocol perspective, but isn't sufficient without those additional guardrails. And I think that fits in really well with numericals kind of role in the industry and purpose, which is to identify enterprises and other large scale entities trying to communicate with their customers, verify that identity, transmit that identity through the call pass, whether it's a voice call, messaging, email, social media, so that the person on the receiving end knows with confidence who was trying to communicate with them and vice versa. You know, two-way trusted communications, I think, is where we all want to be uh, in the future. And it looks like RCD is a pathway to help us get there. And I noticed a lot of enthusiasm in the room uh, for RCD. Um, and <clears throat> it's not just numerical and CTIA talking about that. That's Shift right, and there, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say shifting gears a bit, but it sounds like you wanted to finish the thought. Uh, you said, you know, people in the room being excited about that, uh, about RCD and this idea of uh, guardrails around the protocol so that you can be confident in the information that's being presented. Um, I remember that one of the 
one of the presentations was actually from uh, one of the enterprises and they were um, concerned about you know account takeover and that sort of thing so uh, what was brought up was that with RCD and then a, a yet another passport uh, type that's coming up there's the hope of a mutual authentication so that RCD could be used to um, present to a, a called party who it is that's actually calling and then they would be able to send back their identity so that it would be a, a fully authenticated identity to identity end-to-end -end communication which is so valuable for banks or healthcare environments or government lots of lots of uh, opportunities I think that. that's going to be a great step forward because right now <clears throat> those those enterprises and and their customers are frustrated by uh, inaccuracy in the call labeling which uh, numerical pointed out in FCC filings uh, a month ago but we also saw <clears throat> quite a bit in the room at SIPNOC this year um, presentations from Ray Pasquale of Uni Unified Office and Henry Hader from from New Star slash TransUnion uh, touched on those as well. And um, just want to get one point out there that I think there might be some misconceptions on. Numerical is not opposed to labeling. We're opposed to inaccurate spam labeling. We think a lot of calls deserve a spam label. Those absolutely. auto warranty calls that we mentioned at the top of the podcast here, those 100%. absolutely deserved a, a spam label. And we think that the analytics play a vital role in, in spam labeling, but we want to get, them, get it, them to get it right, and we want to provide them better information so, to improve their accuracy. That's, that's absolutely correct. The, you know, the analytics are a critical backstop. Even for the ecosystem that I was describing before, you want to make sure that you have you know, belt and suspenders approach, right? That you try to, try to make sure that there's as much trust as possible uh, in in the system and you know to the to the defense i suppose of the analytics providers the information that they have to to work on at the at the speed of the calls coming in wire speed is limited and even with stir shaken or a full stir shaken implementation where the analytics could have full visibility to it there's still just limited information and with rich call data richer sets of information there's more opportunity for those uh, analytics providers to be able to usefully differentiate between the good callers who are self-identifying and are provably um, safe versus the ones that are out there trying to scam everybody. And speaking of the analytics, one of the presentations I enjoyed the most was one given by TNS about artificial intelligence. And you touched on artificial intelligence at the top of the podcast here. But I think it brings together a lot of the themes of the of the conference and a lot of our fears and a lot of the data that we learned at the conference. You know, several presenters mentioned that the volume of calls had decreased, but the calls that are left are more targeted. They're more likely to be a phishing call where they've accumulated information about the target. They're not just mass calling 10 million people with, hi, we're calling from the IRS. They've got some information about you. It might be a bank account number. It might be something else. And the volume is down. And my fear, and uh, you know, TNS talked about this this reduction in volume. And my fear with this is AI can be used in two ways. One is to scrape the dark web and other data leaks for sources of information that can be used to target. And then we also learned that 
they can create a very realistic voice uh, replication. I'm not quite sure the term that others use, just based on a few seconds of audio. And it could be, you know, a teenager posting on, on TikTok or on Instagram. And that can then be used with AI to generate whatever the scammer wants to say. And I think we're all familiar with the grandparent scam where a caller pretends to be a grandchild in distress and, and preys upon uh, uh, the elderly who are trying to help out their grandchildren but might not be uh, fully in, uh, informed about the the type of call that's coming in. And with AI, those calls can have better information about that teenager and they can mimic their voice. And I just, it worries me as, as a parent, uh, not yet a grandparent, thankfully, um, and worries me that those calls, those scam calls could be much higher risk going forward. Oh, yeah. The uh, spear phishing, as it's been sometimes called, is is a real concern. And uh, so I, I don't think I can add anything to what you said there. I, I agree with you 100%. I do think that TNS did a very good job of describing the different kinds of um, AI models that can be used uh, for analytics as well. And so it was interesting to get a little bit of insight into the methods and mechanisms they were trying to use to help identify um, bad callers and so that was uh, you know the AI piece of that the part the spear phishing and the you know the higher efficiency of the uh, scam calls but then also um, it's used to help protect against those calls it was a it was an interesting set of presentations on that in an annual feature or it seems to be an annual feature is a presentation by Jonathan Nelson at Haya with uh, probably the best data in the industry about the prevalence of robocalls and spam calls and labeling and blocking and all that. Um, tell me a little bit more about what we learned from, from that presentation. Um, what I learned, what I think was the major takeaway from uh, Jonathan's presentation was that, you know, the days of uh, robocalls, uh, robocall campaigns being able to be identified by uh, high volume, short duration are, are somewhat over. Those calls, you know, the calls still exhibit those same features, but the difference is now they're not camping, for the most part, on a single number. I remember um, that at the beginning of, you know, looking at all the problems that we were getting back in 2016, um, the FCC asked us to implement a do not originate list and also to block calls that were invalid or unallocated. And in both cases, those categories of robocalls have dropped to less than uh, 1%. And so I think the, the major takeaway that I got from Jonathan Nelson is that their job is exceedingly hard because of, frankly, number rotation. In some cases, perhaps the robocallers are acquiring large volumes of numbers and rotating through those, or they're just plain spoofing the numbers, right? The, the neighborhood spoofing and snowshoes uh, spoofing that we've heard about. And then um, there was another piece on this that I was going to mention that was important, and I've forgotten it. But That's if I right. come back to it, if it comes back to me, I will share it. We've got plenty to talk about that if it comes back to you, bring it back up. Um, but we talked, touched on the, at the beginning about TDM. And one thing I was surprised to learn about TDM, I had always assumed that it was the small rural carriers that were the, the slow pokes and implementing and, and installing TDM networks. But Brian Ford of NTCA, which is the Rural Broadband Association, he spoke, I think he said 93% of their members are all IP. 
And he said it's the big legacy wireline carriers that are the ones that still have a bunch of TDM in their networks. And why is that a problem going forward as we finalize Dirtshake and deployment and RCD? Why is it a problem to have TDM left in the network somewhere? Well, first, I'm going to give you a little bit of noise for being a, a, a regulatory policy attorney that worked for several very large service providers, and that's why you had that bias against those poor little small rural service providers. But um, Guilty as charged. I yeah. <laughs> have in the past had an attorney-client relationship with AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, and T-Mobile at various points in my career. Um, and Tata. And a large international provider, as well as the FCC. But uh, continue yeah. your thought, Pierce. Well, so... The, um, so the 93% number, uh, and that's interesting to me because that, that number, I don't know if they haven't run a survey recently, but that's pretty, I think that's pretty close to the same number that Brian Ford was, um, you know, providing uh, in the last SIPNOC. And the qualification I would offer there is they're, they're IP capable and they're IP enabled on the line side of their infrastructure. And I'll say switch because that's probably what they have. Um, but on the trunk side, no, it's still TDM. And part of that is because of, well, I'm going to say that I think the main part of it is because right now that, that interconnection that to the tandem and the way that they do their call routing, I'll say is fairly simplistic. So I'm a small provider. I have less than a hundred thousand subscribers. All of my numbers are loaded into my switch. Whenever any of my subscribers wants to call any of the rest of my subscribers, I route that call directly. But for anything that's outside of my pool of subscribers, I just hand that call off up to my interconnection provider. And that interconnection provider then has access to the number portability and uh, local exchange routing guide to be able to route that call further into the PSTN infrastructure. So they, they're dependent upon that tandem interconnection and that tandem interconnection uh, per the intercarrier compensation regime, and please nobody get mad at me if I don't get this right. My understanding is that, you know, the FCC set guidelines to reduce the cost of the calls that were terminating through that infrastructure down to, I don't know if it's triple zero seven or if it's just like bill and keep at this point. So there's no cost for the calls, most of the calls to tra traverse that interconnection, but uh, and also that interconnection is, I think, either free or maybe they pay for half of the interconnection. I can't remember the exact interconnection cost. But if they take away that, that tandem, they take away that TDM interconnection, that implies that that um, small service provider is now having to purchase uh, SIP trunks and access into the, into the PSTN through very large... TDM, you know, uh, very large service providers with a substantial TDM base. And the last I saw on that, the, the, the standard suggestion had been how to use a uh, reasonable set of protocol standards for SIP interconnection over the internet. But as far as that, that routing that I was talking about, where they're doing the number portability lookups and dips and getting those calls distributed into the PSTN, that wasn't going to be free anymore. That was going to have to be paid for too. So, so is it fair to say from, that, that um, some of the disincentives to upgrading the network, it's not just the cost of the equipment, but it's the lost revenue from how the existing network is set up? That's exactly right. And I Good think summary. it's time for questions now. We're approaching the end of our half hour if anyone has a question, uh, type it into the uh, the chat window, and, and we'll see if we can address it. And 
While we're waiting for questions, Pierce, let's go overseas. Uh, the UK and France and uh, France sent uh, or carriers from there sent uh, representatives to SIPNOC. What's going on in France right now? Um, so yeah, we had a, a couple of folks from France. One was uh, a virtual connection, and then Patrick—I don't remember Patrick's last name—was in the room. He crossed the pond to be at the SIPNOC. Um, and the situation there is pretty much the same as what happened in the United States. Their legislature passed a law called the Nagellan Law and required them to implement Sturshaken by a particular date, which I think has already passed. I think it was July of this year. Um, and a surprising part of that law was a requirement that not long after the implementation of Sturshaken, they're requiring that the service providers block any calls that fail verification. And that's a that's a really big leap to take, and I was very sensitive to what Patrick uh, had said about what their approach on this, which I thought was very rational, very sensible. And so the approach that they're going to take is they're going to implement a set of metrics to pay attention to what is the performance on on stir shaken. And I would say, you know, it's kind of like a beauty's in the eye of the beholder. The performance is what you have to learn from the person trying to verify the calls. The guy that signs the call and puts it onto the infrastructure, he doesn't really know what's going to happen to the passport that he puts into the signaling and sends it across the wire. Will it be lost in the middle? Will it go through a TDM leg and be stripped because TDM doesn't, most TDM infrastructures don't have a way to uh, handle stir shaken within the TDM infrastructure. Um, so they're they're taking a, a what would you call it a careful view they're taking a careful steps to make sure that they can be confident of the reliability of stir shaken within their environment before they take that final step of saying okay we're confident in the robustness the reliability of this transport and of this architecture and we can go ahead and block calls that fail verification. I think we're a I'm long way from doing that, that here goes. in the U.S. Um, the block calls that are not signed, there are still exceptions and exemptions and extensions out there. But I think we're uh, at the end of our time here, Pierce. We could talk for days as we used to. Um, Pierce and I were both at Sprint together and worked on robocall issues for many years. So it's great to reconnect with an old friend here at Numerical. And we got to spend three days together at SIPNOC. But uh, I'd like to thank everyone else for joining us for another episode of Tuesday Talks. Our next live episode will be two weeks from today on October 3rd, when uh, the, uh, we'll be joined by Numerical's D Director of Client Engagement, Natalie LaFerriere, to bust out some number reputation management myths. Until then, stay curious, which Pierce always does. Thanks, Pierce. <laughs> thank you. Take care. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Tuesday Talks. Our next live episode on Tuesday, October 3rd, will be co-hosted by Numerical's Director of Client Engagement, KYC, Natalie LaFerriere, and Marketing Coordinator, Sarah Blantz. They will be breaking down common number reputation management myths and shedding light on the true facts behind these recurrent misconceptions. So join us in our mission to promote transparency and collaboration to return trust to communications. Simply click the link to register and join us at the live show. Invite a friend and be sure to submit a question you'd like to have answered live.